Hey, this is Rob, and this is episode 12 of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. All right, there have been some interesting reports, some articles, uh, some things I'm seeing around the industry within specialty coffee that made me feel like I should record an episode about where I think specialty coffee is going. Now, if you've listened to past episodes, you've probably heard me talk about the term specialty coffee. Uh, It's kind of a weird thing because technically the term specialty coffee refers to any coffee that's rated as 80 points or above. These are typically rated at origins, by Q graders, by people evaluating the coffees. Any coffee that is 80 points or above is specialty coffee. And so it makes it kind of difficult to separate out like what I consider to be third wave coffee, which I'll get into in a second, or like really high-end specialty coffee. That's typically how I say it. When I talk about folly coffee, I talk about high-end specialty coffee. Uh, there's no term to separate out what like a Starbucks, which a lot of their coffees are around that 80-point mark, versus what we're trying to do or what a lot of uh, new roasters or third-wave style roasters are doing, roasting really high-end, high-quality coffee. But for the sake of what we're talking about today, the statistics we have, the uh, articles, the reports that are being written are typically just about specialty coffee as a whole with some focus on the third-wave style. So before I continue, I will clarify what third wave is. Uh, It's a a term that's pretty ubiquitous within the coffee industry if you're like a high-end light roast drinker. And what it refers to is the three major waves of coffee within the U.S. Uh, The first wave of coffee is like pre-80s, like early 70s and earlier. And the first wave of coffee is the only way that coffee was really consumed in the U.S. was like either instant coffee or Folgers. The joke is that Coffee only came in a tin can. Uh, Really low-grade coffee. It was typically mixed with heavy cream and sugar, and that's just how people drank their coffee, and it was just for a caffeine fix. It wasn't until the late 70s, early 80s, with Starbucks coming along and really introducing the U.S. to what is now called the second wave of coffee. This is where uh, higher-quality beans than it had ever been present in the U.S. were being brought to market, and people started realizing that coffee could be better tasting, it could be higher quality, and have actual tasting notes to it, not just as cheap and bitter as you can go. And so Starbucks introduces US to like 80 point coffee at this point, uh, introducing specialty coffee. So the second wave is really when specialty coffee became a thing. And then it was the, depending on who you talk to, the mid to late 1990s, early 2000s is when the third wave of coffee started becoming prevalent. And this is where roasters were looking for higher and higher quality coffee and typically roasting it very light to bring out the uh, the delicate notes, the delicate tasting notes, the more complex coffees, bringing sweeter coffees, the full range of flavor found within third wave coffee. So that's a very brief introduction as to what that means, but that is the term that most people use when they refer to high quality coffee. Other terms that I'll use interchangeably throughout this episode would be third wave coffee, craft coffee, or high-end specialty coffee. Uh, Those are the terms that I typically use when referring to what we roast at Folly and referring to other really high quality roasters that are really intentional about the beans that they source. 
So the two major things that have come out recently that I will be referring to the most and trying to provide some of my own insights as to where things are going would be the 2019 NCA report, that is the uh, National Coffee Association, and then there was a really interesting article that came out from Fast Company. It's always exciting to see national publications that aren't coffee-specific writing about things as specific as quote-unquote craft coffee. And so reading that article, having enough people reach out to me about it, asking if I read it, prompted this episode. And so going into it, I'm going to start with the NCA report. And the way they do it is it's an online and phone, uh, what would you call it? Not a quiz, but a, a study, uh, so, so a report. And so they're going out and interviewing people on the phone uh, and online. And so it's not perfect because, you know, people who it's kind of a self-report thing. You have to choose to do it. So it's not a perfect report, but it's as good as any, seeing as how they interview over 2,000 people for this report, and they tried to get a random sampling of people, not just one specific part. And so the key things that I pulled from that report are, number one, number of Americans drinking coffee are up 6% since 2016. And the way they categorize a coffee drinker is somebody who's drank coffee within the last day. Now, 6%, not a massive number, but it does show as the previous 8 to 15 years have showed is that, is that coffee drinkers tend to remain pretty stable over time, the number of people drinking coffee. Now we're seeing a slight growth, and there's a multitude of factors that go into the growth of coffee uh, that I'll get into a little bit. But I think a big part of it is people becoming more health conscious, realizing that black coffee is something that's healthier than a lot of energy drink replacements or all these other alternatives. Um, and within coffee, gourmet. Now, this is where it gets a little tough because the NCA uh, does the report on gourmet coffee, which means that they use specialty beans or they use high-grade beans is how they qualify it. So it's even a little bit more general than specialty coffee, but it is the best thing we have to use. So that's what we're going to use, uh, gourmet coffee. And this is what gets me excited is that gourmet coffee, for the first time ever, is at an all-time high of 60% of the past-day drinkers report that they drink gourmet coffee. Now, as you could imagine, places like Starbucks, places like Pete's, and places like Caribou are in the Midwest are places that drive this. They're becoming more popular than ever. But it's also this third-wave trend because it's the younger consumers that are driving the gourmet growth. A lot of the growth coming from that category is from younger coffee drinkers. And as I know from previous research, younger coffee drinkers tend to prefer third wave style coffee. They're what's causing the growth of this category. So when I see that gourmet is at an all time high, that's showing me the things, the, the, the thing I take out of that is what's driving that growth well, obviously gourmet coffee, but what within gourmet, and this is where you kind of lose the details of the study because it doesn't go to that high level, but my gut is telling me that it is the third wave light roasted style that's driving that because it's the younger coffee drinkers that are going to that category. And so I don't know how else to say it and I won't repeat it for a third time. The next point being that cold brew, as predicted within this category, Cold brew is driving a lot of incremental growth. Specifically, RTD, meaning ready to drink, is a big influence on the growth of uh, gourmet coffee or specialty coffee. 
Uh, and then the last point is this remained pretty stable from 2018, but there seems to be an increase in home brewing uh, with the numbers that they provide are 63% drip coffee, 41% single cup, which single cup I would assume is K-cup, which as anyone who's heard a past episode knows, no bueno on the Keurig from a sustainability standpoint, from a coffee quality standpoint, from a freshness standpoint. Uh, there, yeah, but it is obviously still a huge uh, part of coffee. Um and again, the younger consumers are the ones driving the cold brew growth. And that is interesting to me. Uh, it's not unexpected, but it's interesting. I get excited about food and beverage trends when you see that it is the younger demographic that's driving the growth of it. And so when I see the younger demographic driving both cold brew and, quote, you know, gourmet coffee, which is in essence specialty coffee, and then knowing that younger drinkers drive the growth of third wave coffee, I'm going third wave has a big influence in all of this, uh, especially when you go into the Fast Company article that just came out. If you haven't read this yet, at fastcompany.com, the, this came out on November 30th, 2019, so uh, a fairly recent article. The title of it is Forget the Tech Bubble. Craft coffee is the next boom industry. Obviously, this raised my eyebrow when I saw this come across my Facebook feed. And my first thought was, big brother's all over me. Facebook is, the algorithm is working perfectly. But in this case, I'm reaping the benefits. Uh, And so that article, the main points taking out of that is this was really looking at when they say craft coffee, they're talking about what I'm talking about is the third wave style, the high end specialty coffee. And so this article was really cool because it was very specific to the style of coffee that I am most interested in. I'm most interested in to where it's going. Uh, And so this article, essentially what it said was that this is in five years, the coffee that's going to be what everybody is drinking. They went over a huge variety of companies with uh, the main focus is being Blue Bottle, Ritual, Verve, Stumptown, La Colombe, and Intelligentsia. These are the kind of uh, really majorly influential roasters in launching third wave uh, nationally. And it's no surprise to me that when you look at four out of these yeah, four out of the five I would consider to be West Coast companies, uh, the exception being La Colombe out of, I believe, Philadelphia. Uh, and Intelligentsia, you could argue, has a Chicago influence because they do have a big presence there. But I would consider Intelligentsia to be a West Coast company as well. And so when I look at that, it's very interesting to me that there's no no major Midwest player outside of Intelligentsia, which really has kind of made uh, Chicago its second home. So this article was much more about like the industry from kind of like a financial and a trend driven approach. And so as I was reading through this, it's a lot of what you'd expect when you, if you're super familiar with the third wave style, they're talking about verve, they're talking about intelligentsia, they're talking about the infusion of cash that's coming into the industry. Because of the growth of third wave high-end specialty coffee roasters with the younger demographic, it's starting to get the attention of venture capitalists. These companies like Verve, like Stumptown, like Intelligentsia are doing enough revenue annually that companies 
that don't care at all about coffee see those numbers and want in. And so you're starting to see venture capitalists and major companies gobbling up like JAB Holdings bought Stumptown and Intelligentsia. Nestle bought a majority stake in Blue Bottle which for $425 million. So about a billion dollar valuation almost. Uh, and Nestle also bought Chameleon Cold Brew. And so other coffee startups are... Like there's a ton of VCs that are starting to throw in money into the ring because they want a part of this booming category. And that was one of the big takeaways of this article. They also highlight uh, other ways that, you know, craft coffee is having an influence. They go over, um, you know, trade coffee. So kind of the, 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 the online, the technology driven aspect of the industry. They look at trade, which if you're not familiar, is an online coffee retailer. They kind of, it's like the Netflix of coffee. It's similar to what we do with Cremico, uh, where users go online and select a list of coffees that they want and you get it automatically sent. Uh, They also looked into the increase of specialty instant coffee, uh, highlighting Verve's instant coffee that they have there. Uh, and then they, they also, interestingly enough, I, the, the one part I didn't expect is they highlighted the, uh, the growth of specialty coffee within small towns. Um, there are great roasters popping up in smaller towns. And it, it makes sense to me because if you're making a great product and you open in a small town, you have very little competition as to who you're competing with for the best coffee in that town. This would be more of a retail place. So if you're opening a cafe, this would make more sense. Like Folly, we roast in Silver Lake, Minnesota, but we have no presence in Silver Lake, Minnesota because we have no cafe and the places there, it would be way too hard to convince them to go to sell our coffee at this point, to be completely honest. Um, now, as I read this, and again, this is a reoccurring theme, the parallels between craft beer and high-end specialty coffee are absolutely astounding. The biggest things that jumped out here is the West Coast influence with a slight East Coast influence. But the West Coast influence on this industry is absolutely astounding. And this is something that is fairly true to most of food and beverage products. It's pretty rare that you see a nationally popular trend come out of the Midwest. West Coast, you know, California, Oregon, Washington tends to be where people way ahead of food and beverage trends are starting out. So when you look, one second, I'm getting a phone call from California. That was weird. I feel like I had to answer that. I was just talking about California that I had to get a phone call from California. But as expected, it was a solicitor asking for something that I was not interested in buying. But anyway, back to the point here. Um, So specialty coffee, food and beverage trends coming from the West Coast. But specific to craft beer, it's astounding to see the explosive growth of craft beer in the early 2000s is what led to what is exactly happening in coffee right now, like to a T. And that's why I emphasize it so much. And it's why I use craft beer and what happened there as a template for where I think specialty coffee is going. So I'm going to be more specific to the the trends of beer and how restaurants and cafes and places serving beer made their choices. And then 
how that translates to coffee and where we're at right now and tying it back into this Fast Company article about the cash infusion in VC and honestly the the biggest dangers I think that could happen uh, of VCs coming in and companies coming in swooping in and buying out these great roasters with large sums of money and tying it all back into how those reflect. So where I'd say... If I'm trying to pick years out, so the way I, I approach like business and trying to make business predictions and guiding my own decisions of both Folly Coffee and Filtera Cold Brewed Coffees is if I'm comparing it to another trend, I try to compare different years that have similar trends. So where third wave specialty coffee is right now, I would probably say is like what we're looking at in, let's say, mid-2000s for craft beer. So let's look at like 2003, 2004. So at craft beer at this time, you're seeing exactly what is happening in third wave specialty coffee. You're seeing some major regional and national players start to get national attention within the category, but also within the like whole business industry as a whole. And you start to see you start to see VCs and large companies swoop in and buy up either a portion, a stake, or the entirety of these regional uh, and national brewers. And then what happens is these VCs come in and apply a lot of pressure for growth. Early on in that process, it works. Because the only way a VC is going to throw money of a large scale into an operation like a food or beverage business is if they're seeing a lot of organic exponential growth. That phrase right there, if you have a business, exponential organic growth means that it's not forced growth. You're not going out there and there's no like major campaign or some big explanation as to why the growth is happening, it's word of mouth, which is the hardest type of growth to get. So when venture capitalists see exponential organic growth within a business, that's when they're willing to look at it. Food and beverage, they tend to be a little bit more risk adverse because food and beverage trends change so often because it's a little bit more of a volatile industry. Uh, But when they see exponential organic growth of these craft breweries happening in 2003, 2004, they come in and buy a portion or outright purchase the companies. Early in that process, uh, well, first of all, here's how the press release comes out. It's like, we're excited about the growth of this company and we have absolutely no plan to alter the way they've been doing things and we want to let them continue to do how they've done it. And that's how every VC, every buyout, everything always aligns itself in that way. And in certain cases, it's true. Sometimes that it, it's true, but in a lot of cases, they only let that fly for about two or three years. Why is that? It's because in those two to three years, exponential organic growth can continue to go at the pace it's been going. But VCs have bought these companies at a valuation of six to seven times the size of the company. And so two to three years in, that exponential organic growth starts to slow a bit. And naturally so, because a business grown locally will have more success locally, especially in something like 
the high-end category of any food and beverage category. At this point, we're talking about craft beer. But as awareness of the of craft beer goes up, as awareness and excitement behind it goes up, more and more businesses in craft beer start to pop up around the nation. So when a company starts to scale, they're being evaluated uh, and bought into at a certain number with the expectation that they will continue to grow at the same rate they're growing. But as they expand, they run into more competition because more people are getting into the industry, especially in food and beverage where people have an insane passion. There are people who will start food and beverage businesses just because they love it. Kind of, kind of like what I did with Folly. It's just, there's so many competitors that popped up in craft breweries uh, that as these companies expanded nationally, they ran into more and more competition locally. So let's jump quick to 2019. You've got Intelligentsia, Stumptown, both bought out by JAB, a massive holdings company. You've got Verve, big VCs pumping money into these companies with the expectation that a blue bottle with Nestle, with the expectation that is that you will continue to grow like you're growing now. And what we're seeing regionally and locally is more high quality roasters pop up. Food and beverage trends tend to be 10 to 15 years behind in the Midwest to the West Coast. And so what I'm predicting is that what is happening in craft beer right now in 2019. So from 2004 to 2019, 15 years, you're starting to see a lot of craft breweries go under or get sold for a fraction of what they were bought out for. The one that absolutely blew my mind last week. Ballast Point Brewery out of San Diego. One of the most reputable breweries in the entire U.S. Their Sculpin IPA is considered by many to be one of the best in the country. They have many variants of that IPA, and their whole lineup of beers is highly revered within the craft beer community. I believe it was... I guess four years ago-ish, so somewhere around 2015, 2016, Ballast Point gets bought out by Crown Beverage for $1 billion. Crown Beverage is the makers of Corona and a lot of the Mexican beers. They were doing, Ballast Point was doing 300-ish million, and this is off the top of my head, so don't quote me, but they're doing around 300 million revenue a year, not profit, they're doing 300 million revenue and they get a $1 billion valuation and get bought by Crown. Go to last week, a couple weeks ago, the announcement came out that Ballast Point was resold by Crown to a small brewery I've never heard of in Chicago for $75 million. Now, I'm not going to say $75 million isn't a lot of money, but that's 7.5%. Is it? Yeah, 7.5% of the original valuation. And the reason this happened is because as Ballast Point made a more and more aggressive push to expand nationally, they pumped money into the sales force, they pumped money into marketing and distribution and incentives. They, what they found is that as they entered new markets, there were a lot of great breweries already there. And so what does this mean for specialty coffee? That's what you're gonna see happening the same thing with these big companies in specialty coffee. At least this is my, this is my prediction is that 
here sitting at 2019 with money just starting to flow into the category, I think five to 10 years from now, when not just those roasters, but the entire category, so everybody making high-end coffee, the number of high-end specialty coffee roasters is going to increase. The revenue and poundage that existing high-end specialty coffee roasters is going to increase. There is, at some point, the consumer is going to catch up in knowledge about specialty coffee and be able to discern a really great cup of coffee from an averagely roasted one. And this is important because this is another layer of craft beer. I'm going to make a note to get back to that one. Let me write this down real quick. All right, wrote that down. I'll get back to that point later because that is extremely important. Uh, I have to be careful when talking about this topic that I don't go too heavy in just the business because at the end of the day, we are talking about a product that is driven by passion. Like nobody that started this business, even like Verve, Intelligentsia, Stumptown, even those largest of uh, uh, specialty coffee roasters that are uh, valued at multi-millions of dollars, billion dollars, they still were founded out of passion. Um, so I wanted to make a point to go back to that. But what I think is going to happen is, like I said, there will be continued growth in the number of high-end specialty coffee roasters. There will be growth in the existing high-end specialty coffee roasters and the numbers and revenue that these West Coast and a little bit on the East Coast roasters have been valued at is going to put an extreme amount of pressure on these companies to grow and to grow fast. This is important because there is a huge, huge difference between exponential organic growth which is what I call pull growth. So this is the customer saying, I want your product. I, I'm, I heard about it from somebody, word of mouth, I want to find your product versus like the push growth, which is a company like JAB Holdings or other large companies using their existing strategies and their uh, sales channels to push the product out to the customer. So they're pushing it in front of people who haven't heard of it. Now, this is not a bad strategy. If you have great branding, if you have a great product, in this case, coffee. If you have an awesome coffee, great branding, this can work because people who haven't heard of you, what's a way to get them to hear of you? Well, get it in front of them, which this is a definite strategy. It's amazing. We're already seeing this in uh, the, the Twin Cities. Uh, all of a sudden, in a couple of our local chain uh, grocery stores that we've been selling in for a little bit over a year and a half now, for the first time we're seeing uh, Stumptown pop up. Uh, Intelligentsia already had a presence within these stores, which shows a little bit more of their Midwest influence. But you're seeing these roasters that previously had no presence in the Twin Cities already starting to pop up. So it's, it's already starting to happen a bit. But here's the thing, is as they expand they're going to run into other great roasters. Now, in the Midwest, there's less competition because there's not as many high-end specialty coffee roasters as there are on the West Coast, which is why the Midwest and uh, the East Coast, to a certain extent, is a huge target for these companies. But the far this, this is not true for all products, but within food and beverage, especially when we're talking in the high-end of the category, people more than ever especially younger people, 
are very, very cognizant of where their products are coming from. This is especially important for coffee for a multitude of reasons. The number one being freshness. Chances are, if I'm buying a product on a shelf or from a shop locally, it's going to be fresher and have touched less hands. And I don't mean that in like a gross way. I just mean like it's had less steps to get there. So it's been exposed to fewer elements and temperature changes and the potential to have been like jostled around or crushed or whatever. Uh, If you're buying a locally made product, it probably will be fresher and have been exposed to fewer elements. Uh, The second is the environmental uh, impact. The one of the biggest environmental impacts that is found in coffee is the transportation of coffee. And so there's obviously a big difference in a coffee being distributed from California to Minnesota than us roasting it an hour away and driving it into town. There's the environmental standpoint. And then a big one that some people overlook is the emotional connection that you have with something. People from across the country are proud of where they come from. This is why local is important. You want to support your local economy. You want to keep your dollars within your local economy. You want to support people doing things within your surrounding areas. And so these are factors that national players, despite having an immense amount of resources and being backed by extremely powerful organizations, that small businesses still have that advantage, especially when they're focusing purely on the quality of the product. So as long as the quality of the product is there, they actually can still compete on a local level with these uh, massive corporations. But here here was the interesting thought I had today uh, that finally made me decide to want to record this is knowing what I know about coming from the beer industry. That's obviously the thing I reference most, but you see it with a lot of food and beverage trends, but specifically within the beer industry, This was kind of how high-quality focused bars, restaurants made their decisions of beer early, early on in the craft beer. To lead to craft beer, it was all about imports. We want Belgian beers. We want high-end imports. Then it transitioned to California. That's where all the best beers are being made. We want only beers from California on tap. So bars in the Midwest, bars on the East Coast, uh, you know, obviously more breweries on the East Coast, but especially a lot about the Midwest right now. (laughs) But this is even true on the West Coast. So West Coast, it was like, we want European beers. We want imports on tap. Then California started pumping out amazing beers. Portland, uh, you know, Washington, uh, Oregon. Uh, Reset here. Beer in the U.S. High quality retailers, bars, restaurants want imports. Then it transitioned to, we want the West Coast beers. This is where all the best beers in the country are coming from. Then, after some time, when enough high-quality producers, or really at this point, when enough producers of beer popped up locally, then people said, we only want local beers on tap. And the reason this thought was interesting to me, because it's exactly where I think we're at with craft coffee or high-end specialty coffee, is for some time, it was, we only want European coffees. I want Italian espresso. I want French roast. Then it changed to, oh, I want that Starbucks, that West Coast coffee. That's where all the best coffee is coming from. Then you saw the development of that across the U.S. 
Now it's changing to, oh, I want these third wave coffee coming out of the West Coast. You're in a stump town, your blue bottle uh, intelligentsia. I want these West Coast coffees. Now we're just getting to the point, I think, is that people are starting to think about, well, who is doing this locally to a high level? I think Denver is a great example because they're kind of West Coast and they're kind of the Midwest. And even I I visited there two times in the past two years. And even from that gap in time between the two different years, I saw a massive increase of a number of local places that said we only serve Denver coffee and they had it on their menu and they used high-end specialty coffee at normal restaurants, bars that you wouldn't have expected to see it. And I think we're just starting to get there in Minnesota specifically. And so it's interesting to see these parallels between the two and it's really exciting. And the key point here is that it's driven by consumers The difficulty I'm having going out and talking to a lot of people about the coffee they serve is the, if it ain't broke, don't fix it concept. You know, well, I don't have any customers complaining about my coffee. It's an answer I hear a lot when I'm talking to people about, why would I pay more for coffee if they're, you know, customers don't ever really bring it up. They're not asking for this coffee. Well, awareness is at a really low point right now. Uh, The high-end specialty coffee drinker is still... I think a pretty big niche market uh, within the Twin Cities. And so it's taking forward-thinking retailers, it's taking forward-thinking bars, restaurants, cafes that are ahead of the trends to say, we're going to actively choose to serve better coffee before our customers ask about it. Which, that's the obviously I'm extremely, extremely biased about this, but would I rather pay more to serve, would I rather pay more for a coffee and serve that coffee and charge more. And the customer might wonder why it's higher priced, but if the end cup they get is noticeably higher quality, then they're going to be happy. People are happy to pay for something that's worth it. And this is where the key important point about what started to happen in craft beer to be conscious of within coffee for two reasons. Craft beer, money starts flowing into the industry, right? So you've got all these venture capitalists, big companies going and seeing exponential organic growth and going, we got to pump money into this. And what happens is people see money flowing into that industry and they go, there's a business opportunity here. Hashtag business. And they're not beer people. And they go, all I need to do is find someone that can make a beer, start a business, and we'll open a craft brewery too. And you start seeing craft breweries pop up left and right and left and right. And guess what? When you're growing at that rate, opening that many places, there are not enough highly skilled brewers to go around. And so you get more and more places opening with brewers that have no professional experience. And all of a sudden, you're getting people going out and buying a, a, a six, seven, eight dollar pint of beer, and they're going, I don't get the big deal. This is kind of gross. Or just simply, this isn't enough better than that four dollar beer I was buying for me to justify doing this again. And over time, the customer became educated enough about taste and about the difference between a high quality, really superbly made pint of beer versus an average one. And they were no willing they were no longer willing to pay for the breweries that weren't doing at a consistently high level. There's nothing more disappointing in my opinion than especially within like 
a meal or drink or whatever that you're getting charged a premium price and you get it and you have a sub premium experience. And so you saw you saw this and you're seeing this happen in craft beer that a lot of local breweries a uh, lot are shutting down their doors because of this reason is typically a business not started in passion or if it was started in passion it was started without enough experience or experienced people on the team to be able to do it well. And this is another way in which craft beer relates to the high-end specialty coffee industry. Um, And it's something that is a growing trend, is as a cafe, maybe they're at one location and they get a second or they get a third and they look at the coffee they're serving. So let's say they're either serving, let's say they're already serving high-end specialty coffee. They've got a great roaster, established, doing great things. Customers love it. They get to two or three locations and they go, you know what? From a business sense, it would make more sense for us to roast our own coffee. We should go buy a roaster and start roasting our own coffee. The right way to do this would be, let's find a highly experienced roaster or someone with a great reputation to roast our coffee program. And there's a lot of places that have started that way and are making some of the best coffees in the country. That's how Spy House here started locally. They were a cafe launched in 2000. They started roasting in 2013, and they have some of the country's best coffees. But more often than not, someone goes, well, what is roasting? Oh, it's just taking a a green bean and turning it brown. And there's like a whole curve thing. uh, And we can learn on the fly. And that, it's, that's actually how I planned on starting Folly. I bought a one pound sample roaster as the, the second I had the idea that this could be a business, I said, I bought a one pound sample roaster and I said, I'll just learn how to roast. And I thought I'd open up this closet door of coffee knowledge. And I opened up that door and it was a hallway with no lights, with no end. It's a highly involved process that is an absolute rabbit hole of knowledge. And so learning on the fly is, I don't know if the word's risky, but what can happen is if you start roasting your own coffee, or if you're making it purely on a business decision and trying to go more budget coffee, but you continue to charge these premium prices for the coffee that you're roasting and brewing, you're going to get more and more people's first experience with that coffee being an unpleasurable one. And you're, and it hurts the entire industry. And the, 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 the great thing, and this is going off on a bit of a tangent, is one of the best things I love about specialty coffee is what it does for the entire supply chain, right? Is if we can get consumers that are willing to pay more for a bag of coffee, willing to pay more for a cup of coffee, then we as roasters can continue to buy better and better coffee. When roasters can afford to buy better and better coffees, this incentivizes the coffee farms to grow higher quality coffee and be able to charge more for their coffee. And then these traditionally impoverished origins have more money coming into them for the same square acreage. And so there's this added layer of me as a coffee drinker, just loving a great cup of coffee and being disappointed when people are being charged for a subpar level coffee. But there's the added layer of the economic supply chain of the entire thing. Now I've gone off 
on a bit of a tangent here, but <laughs> it relates directly back to craft beer that over time, and maybe this is where I wrap up this episode because I've definitely gone on a bunch of weird tangents here, but just to tie this all together is here are my predictions of what you're going to see within high-end specialty coffee, craft coffee, whatever you want to call it, in the next five to 10 years. This influx of cash from large investors is going to continue to flow into the top dogs in the industry. You're already seeing it. Intelligentsia, Blue Bottle, Stumptown, uh, they've all been bought out or they've been bought into. The next round, you're going to see people start to look at regional roasters and say, which the, which regional roasters can we pump money into? Then when this influx of cash continues to come over the next three to four years, there's going to be an in, a continued increase of pressure for non-organic growth from these companies, and they're going to run into a lot of these roasters who are doing great things locally. Then what will happen is when people start seeing, when business people start to see this happening, they're going to say, we need to start roasting coffee, and it's going to be a purely business opportunity. And they're not going to either be experts on coffee, they're not going to be passionate enough to know what truly makes an amazing coffee versus like a good one, and they're going to jump in. And I think what you'll see is that this will reflect in the final bean that is roasted. And so over time, you'll see high-quality producers that haven't stretched themselves too far geographically have success. You'll see producers, roasters, I mean, that or cafes, retailers, whatever you want, cafes, retailers, roasters that market themselves as the highest quality, but purely as a business decision, you'll see them start to struggle. And then you'll see these huge, huge, these larger companies that have been heavily backed financially not potentially not be able to keep up with the valuations that they were given. And VC companies are trying to, despite what they might say, they're trying to flip a company in five years. So five years from now, you're going to see some movement in the category. So it's 2019, the end of 2019 right now. I'm saying it by the end of 2024 that you're going to see some major sales happening from these VC-backed roasters. And it'll be interesting to see what the overall landscape it is. That's the biggest factor here is if the overall industry can support the growth that VC wants, this might not happen. But with the increased number of roasters, both locally and regionally, as they expand across that landscape, that's what you're going to see. So to kind of put a bow on the whole thing, I guess what I'm, <laughs> I, this did not go where I thought it was going to go. I guess what I'm trying to say is that over time, customers will become more aware of high-end specialty coffee. The excitement behind it will continue to grow because I'm sorry if you've had a really great cup of thoughtfully roasted, lighter roasted coffee next to your everyday Starbucks, your big players, your kind of like dark roasted coffees. If you've had them side by side and you know what you're drinking, it's like 
it's a whole different experience. And if you can have that experience every day versus an average experience, there's too many people, especially younger drinkers that are so invested and so able to connect with the products that they consume, excitement will continue to grow. I think even what we view the industry as and what high-end specialty coffee will be in terms of just like the, the zeitgeist, I think five to 10 years from now, nationally, it's going to be more the regular than not. It's going to become more of the norm. Shops, restaurants, cafes are going to think about who's roasting their coffee. How are they roasting it? What does our coffee program look like? As opposed to right now, it's kind of just whatever the equipment distributor carries. Um, it's it's a very volatile industry, food and beverage in general. And uh, obviously, there's a lot that goes into it. But uh, yeah, that's it, it, I, I know I harp on the whole craft beer, craft coffee thing, but it's just every article I read and every trend I see pop up, it, it, it's just it's astounding. The number of coffee drinkers remains the same over time in the past 10 to 15 years. The amount being spent on coffee continues to increase. It's the younger consumer that's driving the growth. The parallels between these industries are just astounding to me. Uh, and it's exciting because you saw what craft beer has become. I was talking to someone who's of recent drinking age, so still in college, and I was just, I was, you know, I was curious, like what, what beers are popular now? It's, everybody's drinking craft beer in college. If you would have told me, and even just 2012, that that's the norm, it would have blown my mind. But that's just where things are now. And I think you'll continue to see that growth happen as long as it's the passionate, intentional, thoughtful roasters that continue to get in front of the people. So that's where I'm going to wrap this episode up. This <laughs> I got to re-listen to this one because I feel like I went on some major tangents. So if you're still listening at this point, I guess I'll say what I always try to say and have a great day.